Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, welcome, and thank you for tuning back in for this week's episode. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and back with me today is Tim Cockrell after his week off from the podcast, at least. <laughs> and we're continuing in our discussion of our current sermon series this week from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. So, Tim, uh, it's our third week in the series. You've completed three sermons. Uh, can you share some of the comments and questions you've been getting from the congregation? Sure. I haven't been getting a, a lot of questions, uh, just some a few comments of people that resonate with the idea of, yeah, we are we're different from our culture. We're struggling to know what that looks like. I had one person kind of jokingly ask me, so does this mean we're supposed to be Amish or something? Like, Because I think that's the tension that you feel. How do you live in the world but in a way that is different and distinct from the world? And I think Peter does a great job of that in the rest of the book of helping us to think through, well, what does that mean for our relationship with government? What does that mean in the way we approach our employment or even our relationship with one another? So hopefully as we go through it, some of those things will become clearer and clearer. But I just so appreciate Peter's emphasis on on the gospel and kind of bringing us back to that foundation. Yeah, and while it seems to me that while Peter is talking to, you know, he talks about the elect exiles, those mm-hmm. who are, and there's probably some persecution going on, mm-hmm. perhaps, uh, you know, in anticipation of some of the bigger persecution that are coming later in that that sixth or what would be the seventh decade of mm-hmm. the uh, uh, after Christ. But uh, we're seeing a uh, situations where yes, that's the t- that's the type of uh, context he's looking into. But we're always beset with uh, just the effects of sin. Right. Mm-hmm. And things that are coming at us, even in those types of things, these truths are still there. The truth of we got to look forward to the sure hope of Christ. Right. Well, and I think even we share a similar culture in terms of we are increasingly being viewed as intolerant and narrow and unloving. And that as we are distinct from a culture that embraces things that scripture forbids, that we're going to feel more and more out of place. I don't think my personal opinion is I don't know that our nation was ever a truly Christian nation, but that there certainly were times where values were more closely aligned with some of the biblical values. And I think we're just seeing less and less of that, which is why I think First Peter is a really helpful guidebook for us as 21st century Americans. And in this passage, starting here in verse 13, we, we have a call to action. Mm-hmm. You brought out Peter's intent here in verse 13. You shared the idea that Peter's talking about the girding up the loins of your mind. Now, I don't ever think I've uh, uh, thought about my mind having loins. But anyway, mm-hmm. but and to being sober-minded. You know, of course, we see that word. That'll be coming up in chapter 5 as well, mm-hmm. being uh, uh, sober-minded. We're called to be ready for action. And then it's interesting to me that the key verb in verse 15 is not necessarily an action verb. It's a form of the word to of the verb to be. Mm-hmm. And so the... The relationship back to what we've talked about in Matthew seems uncanny, I think, especially Mm. chapter five about it's not only what you do, it's what you are. Right. Absolutely. And I I do think the connection between the Sermon on the Mount and what Peter is talking about is so clear that because we are citizens of an upside down kingdom, as we live in a different kingdom here on earth, we're going to feel a sense of discomfort and even a sense of displacement because this isn't where we belong. And so one of the key things we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount that I think Peter is reinforcing here is that our relationship with Christ 
is the basis for our responsibilities to Christ. And so when he calls us to be holy, he's reminding us of what God has done as the fuel for what we are called to do. That because we belong to him, because he is holy, we are to be holy. We're supposed to bear a family resemblance to God who is our father. But that we have to be so careful that it's always rooted in heart transformation. Because as I mentioned on Sunday, if we don't, we're prone to become moralists or legalists. That we think of holiness as just simply kind of a religious list of rules or checklist that we go down through. And it's really about a radical reorientation of our priorities, of the things that we treasure and pursue, that then is going to naturally manifest itself, but it's it's rooted, first of all, in who we are, and that then leads to what we do. Yeah, and certainly a lifelong pursuit for mm-hmm. anybody who's trying seeking to follow Christ. So I like that you got a little language nerdy on us uh, here <laughs> the other day on Sunday, but, but I really like that statement you made. You said something along the lines of that we need to hear Scripture's imperatives, that, that is what we need to be doing, in the context of God's indicatives, that is what God has already done. And, and of course, we're seeing that here in this passage. Uh, first of all, can you refresh our memories on how you see that working in this passage? Just uh, maybe uh, hit a little bit what you said Sunday. Mm -hmm. But secondly, what are some other examples in Scripture where this concept can be helpful? Absolutely. Yeah. So in the passage, uh, Peter begins with verses 1 through 12 that really focuses on their identity in Christ. So, I mean, even from verse 2, you are the elect exiles. You have been called into a relationship with God because you've been chosen by God. And that then means you've been called out of the world. You're meant to be distinct and you're to, meant to be different. You've been born again to a living hope. You have a, a secure salvation on earth and a secure inheritance in heaven. And that then means that you're called to suffer, but that you're suffering by God's design. Just as gold is refined, you're being refined in the process. And I think all of that is helping them to understand how they fit in the salvation story, even to where this is a salvation that the prophets longed to look to, and ultimately where their hope stems from. And that then in light of that, in light of what God has done, that then is the foundation and the fuel of what they are to do. Mm-hmm. And I think we see this pattern. You ask kind of where else do we see this? We see this all over the place in the New Testament epistles, Paul in particular, where the first half of the book, roughly speaking, is going to be on, here's what the gospel is. Here's what it has accomplished. And then often about midway through, there's going to be a therefore. So Ephesians chapter four, verse one, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse one. And it's calling to mind all of this rich theological truth that then is the basis for our behavior. And I I think that's one of the reasons why we have to renew our minds, why we have to really discipline ourselves and gird up the loins of our mind, if you will, to be rooted in truth. Because if we don't, we're going to tend toward just focusing on external behaviors, not true gospel transformation. And I would guess we can even go back to the Old Testament, um, thinking of a, of a passage, Be Strong and Courageous, that we see numerous times throughout the, uh, the Pentateuch and, and on Joshua, Judges, Joshua in particular. But um, that was against the context of the people having seen the Lord preceding them in the day and standing behind them in the night in the form of the pillar of fire and the cloud. Wouldn't that be a, another yes. good example? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you even think about when God called the people out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He took the initiative to save them, we would use in terms of New Testament language. 
and that then he makes a covenant with them. It's not the new covenant that we enjoy. It was an old covenant, but all the, the Mosaic law, as we would call it, was not the basis for that relationship, but the expression of it. Right. In light of the fact that you are now mine, I have purchased you as my possession, here's how you are to live. And that's why in Leviticus, he's going to say over and over again, you're to be holy as I am holy. And here's how you do that. You're going to look different in the way that you dress and the things that you eat. You're going to worship different in terms of, of how you orient your heart, but that all of those things are rooted in God's saving grace as the, the expression of salvation, not the basis of it. And that phrase, and we also see throughout there, I am the Lord your God. Mm-hmm. That's, of course, that's rife with meeting. We don't have time to go into that right now. Right. But, Tim, one of the words that it would be easy to miss, or it could be easy to miss if we're not careful in verse 13, is the word fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, there in verse 13, it says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober minded, set your hope completely or fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, with the earthly responsibilities that, that we all need to attend to every day of our lives, how in the world can one be fully, completely attentive to God's grace? Yeah, it's a good question because you mentioned this a little bit on Sunday. We are bombarded with information, and so much of it is unhelpful, often unimportant, things that are just flowing into our minds. But I think most of the time the problem is not the, the amount of information but the objects of our affection. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think he's saying, hey, the only thing you can think are, are kind of spiritual thoughts, but that when uncertain time comes, when, when suffering or struggle happens, we set our hope on something. We look to something to rescue us, to provide stability or security, and, and those things are revealing the idols of our heart. And so I think what Peter is reminding us is that tendency we have. You know, the hymn writer would say, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so it's calling us to a disciplined faith with an undivided heart, an unpolluted devotion to the Lord, recognizing none of us have arrived and none of us will arrive this side of heaven, but that it's about a a progress, an intentional pursuit of setting our hope on the Lord. And that's going to require us to put off certain things. I'm, I'm not going to trust in this. I'm not going to follow the world's pattern in this way. And then put on a particular way of thinking. I'm going to remember and rehearse the gospel in my mind. I'm going to root my identity in who God is and who he says that I am in light of Christ. And that in doing that, we are, are calibrating our perspective in a way that's rooted in God's truth, not just our feelings, our fears, or our experience. So I'll tell you what comes to my mind when you're saying that, <clears throat> excuse me, and that is <clears throat> the Bart of a half hour ago, mm. knee deep, probably about waist deep in a project, and I'm on the computer, and I'm focusing, and I'm ready to go. I look at my watch. It's a little after the time that we had scheduled to meet to record, mm-hmm. and I'm jumping in the truck and hair a fire and scrambling up to the church facility so that we can record. We walk in here uh, just uh, very practically. The first thing that you and I do when we sit down or any of the mm-hmm. guests, we sit down and pray. Mm-hmm. Really, it seems to be what you're talking about, just the idea of disciplining ourselves, 
take a breath, even when we are in those those pursuits that we're called to do and we're mm-hmm. called to be faithful in, working for, well, I was working for a client, mm-hmm. uh, doing that, but just, okay, reminding ourselves, okay, this, we need to just step back and remember what we're really here for. Absolutely. Because even many times we can't control the external suffering or stress that we're experiencing. Right. Sometimes we can, sometimes we've, we've invited it. But, you know, I, mean, I think about the, the young mom who's dealing with a, a toddler and a, a preschooler and maybe a new baby on the hip and saying, yeah, yeah, it'd be great to be able to, to give myself fully to an hour of time in the word, but I don't have five minutes to myself. Or the, the person that's caring for an aging parent while they're, they're working a full-time job and, and dealing with college-age children and feeling stretched in every different direction. Peter isn't providing instructions that are disconnected from reality. In fact, I think as, as we look through it, it is immensely practical that in the midst of the storm, as we walk through the valley of suffering, where we orient our hope and where we fix our eyes is ultimately going to determine how we weather that storm and walk through the valley. And to, to those points, I, I sense a tension here in verses 15 mm. and 16. It's repeated throughout the whole of scriptures. God's people are called to be holy. God says, be holy for I am holy. There are several times in Leviticus, as you pointed out the other day. Uh, and there's no room in that statement given to anything other than complete holiness. But you know, even Paul, Romans 7, he's decrying his lack of holiness, really, mm-hmm. is what it comes down to, assuming that he is talking about himself, that, that mm-hmm. is the man, right. I think he is. Speak to the person who so wants, uh, you did this a little bit, but so wants to live the truly holy life, but fails miserably day after day. Right. And, and that, you can speak to me, you can, I'm guessing <laughs> you can speak to Tim Cockrell as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Well, and, and as much as we want to start with assurance, and we will get to that in just a moment. I think it's important to recognize that there is a place for self-examination to say, am I a genuine believer? Like Paul instructs us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, to where even somebody that, that was a giant of faith as Paul was, he says, but I've disciplined my body and I bring it into subjection lest when I've preached to others, I myself would be disqualified. That there's the danger of going through the motions and wanting to be a particular type of person, but for the wrong reasons. Like we want to be known as a godly person. We want to be respected in religious spheres. We want to uh, be a, a moral person or an upstanding person in society. Those in and of themselves are insufficient motivations for genuine spiritual change. And so I think we have to start off by asking, Have I genuinely trusted in Christ? Have I truly repented of my sin? Or have I kind of said, I'm I'm feeling bad or guilty about my sin, but I'm not genuinely changed? Mm -hmm. If, as we examine ourselves, we say, yes, I I fully have believed and embraced the gospel, but I'm not yet what I long to be. Well, that's when I think we we think through the means of grace that God has given Mm -hmm. us. His people, that's something we're going to talk a lot about in our message this coming week. His word, his spirit, prayer, um, some of the spiritual disciplines that we might think through. Because what God expects of us is not sinless perfection. What God expects of us is is growing in, in a sinless direction, you know, to where we are, are putting off certain patterns 
And that's going to require hard work and daily sacrifice. And so I think we just start where we are. And we don't lament the fact that we're not all that we wish we would be. I mean, to a degree we do, but we don't live in despair in that sense. But rather we are fueled by grace to live moment by moment in faith-filled obedience. And when we struggle, we're honest about it. I mean, the, the characteristic of true believers is not that they never fail, but that when they do so, they repent. And that's the whole premise of Matthew chapter 18, that if, if I have a believer who sins against me, I bring their sin to their attention so that they will repent because that's what believers do. Mm-hmm. And so I would say just developing those rhythms of, of repentance and reminding ourselves of the gospel as we seek to day by day pursue him and that we don't do that alone that we do that in community because we're not intended to carry that burden alone. And it doesn't come down to, to uh, do we love God? <clears throat> when you love someone, you really want to do what's best or what they call you to do. Mm-hmm. Verse 17, it, it identifies the Father as, and I'm quoting here, the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, first, a little bit of a picky question, maybe, but uh, someone might ask, isn't it Jesus who's going to judge at the end times? So there's that. But secondly, isn't judgment reserved for non-believers? We read in Scripture that the, you know, the, those in the, the judgment are going to be judged uh, and the goats and the sheep separate and so forth. Is Peter including Christians in the judgment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, some, some good and, and rich theological questions there. So let's start off with the question of, isn't Jesus the one who judges? It's true. He, he is the one who judges. I mean, he makes that clear even in Matthew 7. Um, I'm forgetting the passage right now, but he even says, you know, I'm the one who judges, not the Father. And so it's, it's appropriate to ask the question of, well, what's going on here? Well, I think we have to recognize that God, by virtue of his position, is the judge. But that God entrusts to Jesus the authority and the responsibility to carry out that responsibility. You know, I mean, maybe a, a modern example would be like if, if the president of the United States declares war on a particular country, we might say that the president invaded, you know, XYZ country. Well, he wasn't there. You know, he wasn't in the tanks or, you know, flying the airplanes, but his agents were. And so in the same way, God is the judge. We recognize that we are accountable to him, but that Jesus is the one before whom we will stand. And so then there's the question of of will believers stand before the judgment? I think one of the things that's confusing about this is we recognize there are different types of judgment. So you already mentioned the sheep and goats judgment. That is a judgment simply that determines in which category do you fall? Do you belong to God or do you not? And and yes, we will be a part of that judgment. And ultimately, the question of whether we stand or fall will be whether we've placed our faith in Christ. And so there is that sense of, I don't want to be a pretender. I don't want to be someone who in that day the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. Because if I fall into that latter category, then I will stand before the judgment where my fate is already sealed and my judgment is being pronounced. But if I am a believer, if I'm I'm a genuine sheep, if you will, I will stand before the Lord. But it's a judgment of works, not a judgment of our eternal destiny to where we are still held accountable for everything we do and say. But that because of Jesus, we know that as we stand before him, we will not be recipients of his wrath but rather recipients of his mercy. Very good, very good. Uh, different 
uh, iterations of the word judgment, maybe perhaps there's just uh, different phases uh, mm-hmm. of that. Good, good. So I'm picking words out here throughout mm-hmm. uh, this passage, and it speaks to me. It reminds me of what uh, what we believe to be uh, the the way Scripture has been inspired. We talk about verbal plenary inspiration, mm-hmm. and that's where our church would stand. That we believe God God uh, chose the words and the phrases and the placement uh, and the structure, and uh, that's how we read Scripture. So words are important. There's the word fear in verse 17. Uh, we often substitute the words awe or reverence uh, mm-hmm. to represent that word fear. Can you share with us how that idea of a holy fear interacts with the idea of the boldness with which we are called to enter into God's presence as well? That tension there again. Yep, it's no doubt it's a tension because up to this point, Peter has been so clear of you have new birth. You have new identity. You've been called and accepted and and redeemed by God. You you have God as your Father. He makes clear in that immediate context in verse seventeen, and that you belong to Him. You can set your hope fully on on the promises that He's been given, but that that does not exclude the fear and reverence that Peter is describing. And so I think what that reminds us or, or that we can recognize is that this fear doesn't necessarily mean this dread of impending judgment, but rather every time in the Bible that we have anybody who is encountering the glory of God, they are on their face before him. Like there is no sense of of kind of self-confidence or self-assuredness. No, no, we are undone. And I think that maybe even goes back to the discussion we were just having about you know, holiness and struggling with holiness. Mm-hmm. I think the closer we grow to God in our relationship with him, the more we recognize just how holy he is and how unholy we are. You know, an analogy would be like, if you've ever gone to the mountains, <coughs> when you're still a far, a long way off from the mountains, you can see them in the distance and they're impressive. But the closer you get, the bigger they seem and the smaller you feel. I think that's a, a part of what we're dealing with here is that as we draw near to him in intimacy, we tremble in reverence. I mean, that's what Hebrews chapter 13 would say, that, that we worship God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. And, and so as we come to him, I think we draw near to him in intimacy, but we never lose sight of the fact that he is the sovereign creator of the universe. And so I think fear and confidence here are not mutually exclusive. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, if you're running a chainsaw, you better have a healthy fear for what that instrument can do. And in the same way that as we we follow after him, we must never lose sight of his sovereign power and his great grace. And as you say, the closer we get, we experience both the awesomeness, but also the gentleness mm-hmm. and the peace that comes by from trusting in him yes so tim uh we've got we're going into the last part of chapter one we're going to be wrapping up chapter one this coming week can you give us just a little bit of a a glimpse into what we're going to be doing yeah so we talked a little bit about the indicatives and the imperatives that who we are in christ determines how we respond to him and the the last week we looked at what does that mean for our relationship with god that we're to be holy and hope filled this week we're really going to look at what it means for our relationships with others and it's going to get convicting it's going to get right down to the messiness of of ministry and relationships because i find more and more people have the idea of saying i love god i just don't love the church 
as if we somehow could pick and choose between those well, two it things. It would be so much easier if it weren't for the people. Right. But, you know, Jesus says in John 13 that the distinguishing characteristic of believers, the defining uh, element is going to be love. And so we're going to look at how then do we live out those relational responsibilities? What's the fuel for it? And what are some of the dangers that we need to be on guard against that kind of pull us back into the direction of our old patterns rather than living in light of our gospel identity? Be a good opportunity for us to reread that all of chapter one and mm-hmm. get a good, uh, good, good run up into here the end of chapter one. Well, hey, thanks for taking time. Appreciate you being here with us again, Tim. Absolutely. Well, we've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and we invite you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. And join us next time. We'll be continuing our study of God's Word there in the latter part of Chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.